chaos, mighty flood. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers. I meditate on your I have kept my feet every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I keep every wrong path. Nice, nice. Okay, let me read uh, something from this day in history. November 8th. Yeah. Um, Edward D. Griffin was born in 1770, the son of a wealthy Connecticut farmer. He went to Yale with the plan of studying for the ministry, but as he entered his senior year, he realized he was unconverted. Horrified at the idea of going into the ministry without personal faith, he turned to the study of law. That's John and Charles Wesley. I mean, they were ministers in the Church of England for years, and they didn't know the Lord. Yeah, um, we've got a lot of ministers in the world today that don't know the Lord. Anyway. In July 1791, Griffin fell ill on his sickbed. Feeling miserable, Griffin began to think, if I cannot bear this for a short time, how can I bear the pains of hell forever? Good question. These thoughts refused to leave him, and within three months, he had trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior and was headed for heaven. Not, old, not long afterward, Griffin began to question his decision to become a lawyer. One Sunday after church, as he walked up the stairs to his room, the question played through his mind over and over. And why should you not be a minister? And why shouldn't why should not you be a minister? By the time he got to the top of the stairs, he resolved that he would seriously investigate the issue. He prayed earnestly that God would give him direction through the Bible. He opened his Bible repeatedly, and each time the passage he read pointed him toward, in his own words, preaching the everlasting gospel and plucking souls as brands from the burnings. In less than 45 minutes, he became certain that he was called to preach the gospel. And preach he did. After training under Jonathan Edwards Jr., Griffin pastored a series of congregational churches in New Salem and New Hartford, Connecticut, and in New Orange and New Newark, New Jersey. In 1808, he became a professor of preaching at Andover Seminary. From 1811 to 1814, he was pastor of Park Street Church, Boston. Finally, from 1821 to 1836, Griffin served as president of Williams College. The blessing of God on Griffin is almost unequaled in the history of American preachers. His ministry was one of almost unbroken, unbroken revival. Wherever Edward Griffin went, the Holy Spirit drew people to Jesus. Griffin saw more people converted under his preaching than anyone since George Whitefield in the mid-1700s. At one point during his years uh, as president of Williams College, there were only 18 students out of the whole student body who had not committed themselves to Christ. His passion for souls continued even as he was dying. To his grandchildren and to his servants, he gave a parting challenge to meet him in heaven. To, and uh, to two grandsons, he said, you must give your heart to the Savior. Don't put off another hour. To a granddaughter, he pleaded, give your heart to the Savior while you are young. Then on November 8th, 1837, Edward Griffin was called to be home with his Savior forever. And they asked, do you know what God has called you to do? Edward Griffin had to wait until he had committed his life to the Lord Jesus before God showed him the plan for his life. Similarly, for the rest of us, the first step to knowing God's plan for our lives is to wholeheartedly trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
Then as we ask him for guidance, he will reveal his will to us just as he did to Edward Griffin. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. Um, not everybody that meets the Lord needs to be a preacher. Uh, you know, he obviously had the call on him, but um, uh, you know the story of, um, let me get his name, uh, Green Greenfield. Um, uh, I can't remember right now. I just had him in my head, and I was going to tell you the guy that founded um, Harvard Law School. Uh, I'll, um, I'll think of his name in just a second. Anyway, he was, uh, you know, a professor at Harvard, and he was talking about how much nonsense the Bible was. And one of his uh, students challenged me. He says, well, have you ever read it? He said, no. And he said, well, that's kind of dishonest. You need to read the thing. And uh, he said, okay, I will. And what he did is he evaluated the Bible from a legal standpoint. And he wrote, I'm fully convinced that this is a legal document. It bears up under the scrutiny of history, as all legal documents would be required to do. He gave his life to Christ, and he became the father of Simon Greenleaf, is his name. Simon. Yeah, he be, yes, the uh, the uh, father of judicial apologetics. And so you don't have to become a preacher to have an effect on the world, and many people have followed in his footsteps. Uh, Lee Strobel kind of follows in the same apologetic uh, ideal that he followed. In. But this guy was actually a lawyer, and he was the principal founder of Harvard Law School, and yet he understood that the Bible is... The word of God. So there you go with that. Um, let's see here. I have. <clears throat> uh, oh, listen. Uh, just in case, if anybody here knows a dentist in the uh, area that will take um, payments, and you know somebody that does cheap work, you do. Let me know after the class. I need to let somebody know that uh, is having trouble that you know can't pay right up front. And uh, does he only do pulling teeth? The one that you know. Or does he do only pulling teeth? That's what I thought. Okay, so if you know that, let me know because this is a nice Christian gentleman that is having trouble and he needs to be able to have dental work, but he has to pay an installment. So there you go with that. And then I have, I know this is going to get us started a little bit late, but I got this in today and I wanted to do a share it with you just real quickly. And the reason why is because of the letter that came with it. Although the book is wonderful and you know, I'd be showing it to all of you eventually anyway. Um, the letter that came with it, I just thought I'd share with you. This is Revive Us Again. It's a chronic logical anthology of American gospel hymnody. Okay, and this person did marvelous work on this. If anybody wants to take it home and look it over, just please do let me have it back. It, it's marvelous. He's got all of the information about the songs. It's in chronology. It's wonderful. But the letter is written by the wife of the person that did this book. And um, I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but uh, they attend online. And um, she's, I've been watching, listening to your sermons and prophecy update teachings for over a year. And uh, they are in, I, I knew this and now I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, uh, Johnson City and New York. Okay. So anyway, what she asked at the back of it is... Um, she said, um, I've recently been diagnosed with the same brain cancer that John McCain died with, but even though the uh, doctors say there's no cure, we know that God's, uh, uh, God's greater than any tumor, and conti I continue to praise him, I think. I'm, I've got new glasses on, so I'm, I'm struggling. I'm woozy with these things because they're, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're gradient, and so I'm really struggling with this. But uh, anyway, um, 
please put me on your prayer list so I have permission to say this um, and uh, pray to about my unsaved children, four boys and one girl who are um, not all saved. My husband worked in on this book for 28 years and please enjoy it. So I wanted to just let you know that please pray for Eileen. She said it was okay in her letter that I could read that. And uh, she's got brain cancer that uh, John McCain died with. And so we would want to add her into our daily prayers. But wonderful book. If anybody wants to take it home, look at it. Just make sure I get it back, please. But um, uh, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet and to worship you, to praise you, and to pray to you with our hearts, with our souls. And uh, you know everybody that uh, uh, is facing troubles wherever they are and whatever their troubles are. I know people that have financial troubles and uh, physical pains and the loss of loved ones, a very heartbreaking one that uh, happened this past week. And Lord, you know all of these things. And we would ask that you would comfort the afflicted and the downcast and be with them, be real to them in their times of trouble. And certainly Mrs. Magnuson isn't here again, so she's obviously too weak to come, but we would continue to pray for her as well. And anybody else that is struggling, Lord, lift them up and be <laughs> with them through their trials and their pains. We love you. We thank you. We commit this uh, this uh, hour and a half to you in your precious word in the book of Romans, and uh, maybe we'll be done today. And if so, we'll start a new book next week, but uh, we'll leave it in your hands whether we finish or not. And we just thank you for the chance to be here. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, go ahead and read your uh, first one there. Do you want me to start at the top of the paragraph? Yeah, wherever you, wherever you get a paragraph start marker. 17. All right. You start turning. 17. Yeah, yeah, but we're starting the verse 19, right? Correct. Yeah, okay, 16, 17, and then we're going to start with 19, analyzing it. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have Keep away from them. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Mm. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Okay, we, we're just almost done with this book. I don't know if we're going to get done today, but we're going to try to do a marathon session. It'll be more verses than we've ever done. But... We'll see how it goes, and uh, if so, next week we'll start into something. But uh, here's an analysis. Yours read almost the same as mine, so I'm not going to. Um, for, for, um, for your obedience has become known to all. For refers back to the previous two verses, which Jim read. What he said about those who cause divisions and offenses precipitates this admonition. By staying away from such ungodly people... They had thus far been able to keep free from stain, and they had grown in Christ, being faithful and obedient to their calling. In order to keep them on that track, the words of this doctrinal epistle were shared with them. And we know this is certain because in Romans 1.8, he said this. We'll go back all the way to the very beginning chapter of the chapter 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So there you go ties that in right with the last chapter in the uh, or last words of the chapter here. Their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world, and now he states that their obedience has become known to all. He's tying the two together. Being obedient is to remain faithful. Thus, the epistle was given to them to bolster their faith and keep them on a sound path. 
Every portion of the letter is directed to faith. We saw that all the way through the book of Romans, faith is the main word all the way through, which with Paul, it is through all of his letters. I mean, faith is where it's at. Even those things that could be considered works are not works of obligation, but works of faith. This is the attitude that Paul desired in them always. I'm going to stop there. This may mean that we're not going to finish the uh, chapter today, but that's okay. Uh, people are always saying that uh, James 2.24, uh, it, it, it says something contrary to what Paul says, and it causes a dilemma in the church and among people. First, James is directed to the Jews, okay? He's not writing directly to the Gentile-led church age. Gentile-led church age has been raptured out. Paul's letters are done, the dispensation of grace is ended, and we come first to Hebrews. Written to the Hebrews, and then you come to James, right? So he's directing it to the end-time Jews. Even if it was written 2,000 years ago to Jews that were alive, this is what is God's, on God's mind as far as how the Bible is structured. But secondly, it says there, um, Paul says that a man is justified by faith and not by works. Everybody knows that, okay? But uh, James, in James 2.24, says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And then what does he do? He says, um, uh, why did he do that? He said that based on verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So, ooh, okay, he's justified by works when he offered his son on the altar. When did he offer Isaac on the altar? Was it before or after Genesis 15? After. Genesis 15, verse 6, he was declared righteous. Genesis um, 22 is when he offered Isaac on the altar. So this is something that happened after he was declared righteous already. Okay, but that is his example for saying, see, he's justified by works and not by faith only. Okay, and then he goes down after saying that in verse 24, verse 25, likewise, was not Rahav the harlot also justified by works? Okay, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So he's saying that you're justified by works, not by faith only. What is he talking about? And people have struggled over this. Martin Luther said, oh, that's a right strawy epistle. He couldn't understand how James could say something, and he almost discounted it as, as a part of the canon of Scripture. He diminished it so much because he didn't understand that if you go one book before, one book before to Hebrews, and you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and you go to, let's see here if we can find this, verse 17. Hebrews eleven seventeen. What is the first two words it says in Hebrews eleven seventeen? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So his work was a work of faith. It wasn't a work for the sake of works. So the very work that what's his name uh, James has said is a is justifying work is a work of faith. And so we'll go on. He goes down further, and he says in verse. Um, 31. Hebrews or James? Hebrews 11, verse 31. Go ahead. Somebody read the first two words. By faith. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. The exact same thing that he says was a work which justified her. Hebrews, does Hebrews come before or after James? Comes before. It's the 58th book of the Bible. James is number 59. And so they've already determined that these were acts of faith. They weren't works that justified her in the sense of justification before God. They justified her faith. They justified his faith. 
It has nothing to do with the justification of righteousness. So I hope everybody understands that. I didn't mean to divert, but every time we come up to one of these, I love to bring up that as an example because people do not understand that. And hence, we have Roman Catholicism, which bases their entire system of works on James chapter 2. All of it. They have to go there for that, that basis. And it's completely taken out of context. The context is Abraham was justified by faith. The context is that we are in the dispensation of grace, Paul's writings from the book of Romans to the book of Philemon, and then after that are the Jewish epistles, the epistles which are written in intent to the Jews of the end times. The church is gone. They are facing rebuilding a temple and going back to temple worship, and he is saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Go back and read Paul's writings and then read Hebrews, which we're going through right now, and you will understand, don't do this thing. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the law, the priestly class, the Levitical setup, everything. He is greater than, greater than, greater than. We need to remember that always is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe so having said that i don't remember where i was give me a second here um yes even the things those things which could be considered works are not works of obligation but works of faith exactly as it says in hebrews chapter 11 of the things that he says are works of justification in james chapter 2 this is the attitude that paul desired in them always in order to spur them on onto this he says Therefore, uh, Fred, I have a wonderful evening. God bless you now. In order to spur them on to this, he states, therefore, this word asks us to go back and review what it's there for. In this case, it is referring directly to the first thought of the verse, for your obedience has become known to all. And because of this, Paul says, therefore, I am glad on your behalf. He's rejoicing in the recognition of the Romans they had earned through their faithful obedience. He's just, he's elated over it, okay? Just so you know, Freda can't drive in the dark. That's why she leaves this time of year early. So if anybody questions, she comes in, she talks, she loves being here, and then she has to go and, and but I'm so glad she's doing well because she's not had a good couple of days with sleeping. So praise the Lord for that. Um, his words here would be comparable to a letter from, for example, Billy Graham. In the letter, he applauds the church for its high rate of conversion to Christ. This would be a most notable because Billy Graham is, we all know, an evangelist, or was. Being noted for great evangelistic efforts by a great evangelist would be a note of high commendation. This is similar to what Paul is saying to the Romans. However, despite his happiness, he adds in a warning. He says, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Hence, he gave them the warning in verses 17 and 18. By highlighting these ungodly people with their perverse agenda and then contrasting them to the recognition of those in Rome, he was hoping to instill in them how to not let their faith diminish or get sidetracked. In this admonition, he uses the same type of thought as Jesus used when speaking to the disciples that he was sending out to Israel. That's found in Matthew chapter 10. We'll go there really quickly. Matthew 10. He uses the same type of uh, speaking that he did, uh, that Paul does here. In Matthew 10, and we're going to go to verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Same type of thought that Paul is giving the Romans right here, right now. So, like them, Paul desired that the Romans 
would be wise in all good things, but be harmless and simple in faithful obedience. Got a life application here. Our work can be summed up in one verse from the Lord's mouth. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What is that? That's 629. Good job. I was going to have to cut off your toe, but I, I'm not going to do it. 629. Good job. Burke has the Bible pretty much memorized here, Steve, just so you know. He's amazing, amazing brain. Everything that we do in Christ and for Christ is either based on our faith in him and what he has done, or it is not a work that can be credited to our account. Have faith in him and set your heart and attitude on doing those things which are based on that precious faith. That means anything that you do. I don't care how minimal it is. If you're driving down the road, it can be a work of faith if you're thinking about the Lord, if you're talking to the Lord. Because you don't talk to somebody that doesn't exist unless you're crazy, right? So anything that you do, anything that you do in faith is a work that will be rewarded. Anything you do that isn't in faith will get no reward. Bill Gates has given away billions of dollars to AIDS research, and he will get zero rewards because he is not in Christ. What you do for Christ, as small as it is, praying for other people, you know, you're stuck in bed and you, you, you can't get out, pray for other people. Lord, I know I'm here and I'm here for a reason. Let me use this time wisely. It's an act of faith. You don't have to do big things to, for Christ to be rewarded. You just have to do great things, and great things are acts of faith faith all right 1620 God of peace will soon crush Satan Woo I love that say it again Charlie, you scared me. that's okay God of peace <laughs> will soon crush Satan under your feet the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you amen mine says amen yours doesn't I'm sorry I just I get excited when I read that Satan is done he's done he's a he's a defeated foe all we have to do is just wait it out okay he can afflict us now he cannot possess believers demons cannot possess believers but they can make our life miserable so we want to keep close to god flee from the devil and he will flee from you or resist the devil and he'll flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you right okay and the word and connects this verse directly to paul's imperative for the romans to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil by doing this and following the instruction given in the epistle, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Paul uses the title, the God of peace, to show that even among those who are contentious, which he's been talking about, self-serving, and who cause divisions, God is still in control, and he is our peace. When those filled with Satan come against the church, he is our safety, he is our hiding place, and he is our calm refuge in the world that rages around us. The thought that he will crush Satan under your feet goes all the way back to Genesis 3. three. Thank you. Verse 1. Absolutely. Let me read that really quickly just so you've got it. And uh, while I'm saying that, does everybody here know that John and Kathy are in Israel right now? They had they stayed with Sergio. Yeah, out in Arkansas. They come and they went to the oh, projects with us. Yeah, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. They're over there right now, but they, they spent a day with uh, Sergio and Rhoda. I got some pictures of them having dinner together and... Oh, boy. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Let me take there. It says, now the serpent. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said 3 verse 1, but that's not. I want 315, I think. Um, Behold, I and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Depending on the translator, might say crush his head in which he's, he's done. The head is crushed. 
Okay, so um, I gotta change, I gotta put a five there because I cut off my five, it's 315. Anyway, the work of Christ as the suffering servant is past. It is over, it is done. The church is currently engaged in the spiritual warfare which rages around us. That's in Ephesians 6. If you want to read it, you read the whole chapter. That's the spiritual warfare that the church is in right now. Okay. And the work of Christ will be completed when he returns and vanquishes Satan forever. Not three ever, not two ever. It is done forever. Okay. And uh, eventually he will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Great. Can't wait. Can't wait. We'll all be standing there watching it happen, I hope. I just, oh, I like Two, three, forever. <laughs> forever. All four corners of the earth. There's nothing missing. Forever. Okay. And this will occur as Paul states shortly. It is the same word used in Revelation 1 1 and 22 6. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come. When speaking of the things which must occur shortly. Because of this terminology, the church has picked up on the notion that it must have happened already. But shortly from our perspective, cannot be applied to God. To Him, a day is like a, a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Where is that found? Psalm 90, verse, anybody? Four. Four. Good. Very good. And 2 Peter 3, verse eight. eight. Yeah, very good. You guys are amazing. Okay, so, um, so shortly doesn't have to mean that God has failed if it hasn't happened yet. Almost 2,000 years after the epistles and Revelation were written, we're still waiting, but shortly is coming. Further, the Greek word for shortly is tache. It's often translated as quickly and rather than shortly. In other words, where it can mean quickly. I'm coming quickly. Not just shortly, like he's going to be here tomorrow, because that can lead people to think that, wow, it's already happened. And, you know, if you're a hyper, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, preterist, you believe that Jesus didn't just uh, do his work and there's no prophecy left. He actually came in AD 70. That's crazy. Like I said, that's a heresy. Why? Because we take the Lord's Supper every single week. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember his death until he comes. If he's come, there wouldn't be any point for that. So preterism is just, it's crazy theology. Anyway, um, so uh, it, it, the same word can mean quickly. All right. Another wholly unfounded explanation used by preterists is that this is speaking of either the Jewish, the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in, in AD 70, or the establishment of Christianity by Constantine within the Roman Empire. People use this verse to justify that kind of stuff. Again, these are completely unfounded explanations because Romans is a part of the Christian Bible. It's a part of what we use in our doctrine today. And therefore, it applies to the entire Christian era, which is going out. Okay, if it was meant that this verse was fulfilled, then he would have said, well, then it's fulfilled and do the other stuff, but don't do that. No, rather, this pertains to all of the Christian era. There's a time when we are going to be taken out of here. This will be done. Good evening. Can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> all right. So here we go. Um, uh, ongoing today. Um, uh, yes, yes, yes. We still have Satan actively working against us. There are dividers within and foes without. Every church has them, okay? Dividers within, foes without. To claim that Satan is crushed under our feet is completely contradictory to the truth of the world around us. It is rather crummy theology. Be assured and comforted. Christ is coming again, and he will shut up Satan for 1,000 years, and then he will eventually toss him into the lake of fire. 
Until then, we will suffer trials. We will have woes. We will have tribulations. We're not a prosperity teaching church here. Okay, we don't name it and claim it. We trust in God's provision and he always provides what we need when we need it. But it may not be what we want. He meets our needs, but maybe not our wants. Okay, we can't claim a BMW and expect to get it. But we also have refuge in the God of peace. And because of this, Paul finishes the verse with a thought which is extremely close to John's final words at the end of Revelation, where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's right. Last words of the Bible. No matter what our headache or affliction, no matter who the enemy is or who comes against us, and no matter what we do, which is contrary to the salvation we have once for all time received, we are secure in the grace of Jesus Christ. We have the absolute confidence that he has our eternal souls secret, securely, I'm sorry, securely in his capable hands. Paul desires us to remember this, and then he finishes with amen, or so be it. Life application. Praetorism does not align with either the Bible or with the events in the world around us. I'm sorry, it doesn't do it. It is faulty. It causes us to divert our eyes from what God is doing in redemptive history. Israel's disobedience in no way negates God's faithfulness. If you disagree with that, Please, before you make your final determination on it, watch the Leviticus 26 sermons. He says, I'm going to bless you if you do this. I'm going to curse you if you do this. And at the very end of it, he talks about his promise to never forsake Israel. And not only does he do that, he doesn't just refer to the covenant. He refers to both covenants. He first refers to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and I will remember the covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, after all of the time of disobedience, it has to be that Israel has a purpose in the end times. It has to. Go watch Leviticus 26. Don't argue. Just watch it. If you disagree, I'm sorry, I can't help you any further because God has spoken. The word is written. Okay? I can help you further. Just keep listening and it'll sink in. Anyway, um, Israel's disobedience in no way negates God's faithfulness. When the church age ends, Christ will rule from Jerusalem and from among his people Israel. Pray for them. The tribulation period is coming, and they must endure many hardships. The book of Zechariah says that two-thirds of them are going to die. It's a very sad thing before they are refined and before they are purified. Verse 16, 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Sosipater, yeah. All right. My relatives. Very close. Mine says, my countrymen greet you. So there you go. All right. Uh, verse uh, 1621, in the first portion of Romans 16, Paul greeted many in Rome. After this came his thoughts concerning the need to avoid divisions and strife by avoiding those who would otherwise tear apart the harmony within the church. With that thought complete, he now extends greetings from those with him. First noted is the famous Timothy, who was seen throughout the New Testament and to whom two epistles were written. Timothy is first introduced into the Bible in Acts chapter 16. Let me take you there and we'll review that. We did Acts about four and a half years ago, or maybe a little less, but Acts 16. Let's see here. Acts 16, and it says here, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. 
Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him in, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. I'm not going to get into the circumcision issue, but these Hebrew Roots Movement people will use that, saying, see, he even circumcised Timothy when Paul explains it elsewhere why he did it. And uh, he says, in, synagogues, you yeah, you, you, you're, they're going to check on you if your mother is a Jew. That's right. And so he did it as an expediency. But he argues totally against that in the book of Galatians. In fact, he says that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you are a debtor to the entire law. Christ means nothing to you. Now, that doesn't mean if you have your children circumcised for health reasons. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about a person that comes to Christ and says, oh, I need to be circumcised in order to meet the demands of the law of Moses. You're falling back under the law. Christ means nothing to you. So there you go. Um, anyway, so after this, Timothy seemed to never be far from Paul. He's noted in the introduction of five of Paul's letters. How many letters does Paul have written? Thirteen. There you go. So five minus thirteen is only eight. Don't have him. Is that um, Hebrews? No, Hebrews is unsigned. Okay, it is Paul that wrote it. But I, you notice how during the commentary every day I'm saying the author, the yeah, author, yeah, yeah, because he did not sign it. I'm not going to go beyond scripture. But yeah, well, that's right because it is an end times epistle, and if it has Paul's name on it, it wouldn't go over well. But there's no doubt based on the context of what Peter says and the uh, patterns which Bollinger identified based on Paul's writings plus the book of Hebrews, it's definitely Pauline. Anyway, um, he's noting the introduction of five of Paul's letters in Philippians 2, 19 through 23. He's mentioned in a most honorable way when Paul calls him a son with his father. Let's go there really quickly. Philippians 2, verse 19. All right. Philippians 4, 3, 2. 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall come shortly. In uh, Hebrews 13, we learn that Timothy had even been imprisoned for his faith at one time. He was eventually ordained. This is not in the Bible. This is extra biblical. He was eventually ordained as the bishop, the first bishop of the church at Ephesus. And is a person never noted as anything but firm and resolute in his friendship with Paul and his integrity and endurance in his work for the Lord. After mentioning Timothy, my fellow worker, Paul goes on to note Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Some teach that Lucius is actually Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, but Jameson Fawcett Brown disagrees with this. They say the fuller form of Lucas is not Lucius, but Lucanus, which I'd agree with. He's probably the same person noted, at, again, as Lucius of Cyrene in Acts 13, verse 1, among a list of prophets and teachers, okay? Jason is mentioned in Acts 17, 5 through 9, in connection with the disturbance at his home, where they met to share the gospel. This occurred in Thessalonica. And Sosipater is most likely known as Sopater of Berea in Acts 20, verse 4. Collectively, these three men are called my countrymen by Paul. They were of Jewish descent and therefore of the same stock as Paul. Well, that, they, would, that would disqualify Luke. Yes, because he was a Gentile. How do we know that? Anybody? 
Luke. People will argue that Luke was a Jew. You hear it all the time. Oh, the Bible is written by Jews, and uh, Paul even says so himself. He's speaking of the Old Testament when he said that Something particular thing. But no, it's not. It begins with C, ends with Olashans. Okay. Yes, Colossians. And then you get to um, the last chapter, chapter 4, and it says here, um, I am sending to you for the very purpose, uh, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. That was verse 7. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. He goes down and he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about him whom you receive instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the sure. circumcision. They're Jews. And then he goes down in verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. He's there with Paul. Paul says that these are the only Jews with me. He then mentions Luke. Luke is a Gentile. Yes, thank you. So there you go. Um, let's see here. Collectively, uh, they were Jewish descent. I said that. They each had extended their greetings to those in Rome and at the same time added both a note and credibility to the letter Paul penned to them. We're going to make it. We're going to be done with this today. All right. Life application. Consider how faithless many people are. We were talking about that lunch today, weren't we? We had Thai. Thai food for lunch and dinner. I can't wait to get home. All right, let's see here. When trials or troubles come along, they fly off like a bird. But Timothy held to Paul like a son to his father. If your church goes through a bumpy patch, which isn't involving wrong, wrong doctrine, will you just get up and leave or will you stick it through the trial? And what about those you were close to as friends and associates? How willing are you to stand with them in their own times of need? Be faithful like Timothy, who stayed with Paul through the most amazing trials and difficulties. Faithful to the end. 1622. Hi, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Okay, Tertius, anybody know what that uh, comes from? Third. Very good. You are a wealth of knowledge. You are a wealth of knowledge. Turtle, yeah, okay, there you go. That was close turtle third that's very close um we find this verse in this verse much more than might at first be apparent i tertius who wrote this epistle tells us that paul used an amanusis or a penman somebody that ascribes okay, yeah who thank you i i always have trouble with that word i knew that i wasn't pronouncing it right say it again out loud amanuensis okay i always have trouble with many vowels you know that when i preach on sunday you know vowels bother me yes so he was the third one uh well i'm going to explain that in a minute but yes the third <laughs> one um paul's writing was unusually large as is noted in galatians chapter six i see i write with very large letters it's the same in all of my epistles it's his signature okay yes galatians 6 11 here it is see what i uh, large letters i have written you with my own hand it is believed because of this and several other pertinent clues that paul's vision was poor Okay, remember he was standing in the same room with the high priest and he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And what did uh, they say? You dare revile God's high priest? He said, I didn't know it was God's high priest. So either he was being even more facetious or he was actually truthful and he couldn't see him in the same room, which is more likely. And then he says to the Galatians, what's happened to you? You would have taken out your eyes for me. 
In other words, he had a physical problem and he knew that they would have given, if they could actually give them eyes so that he would be cured of it. And then what does it say? They took him by the hand. They led him from place to place when he was traveling down towards on the way to Athens. So he, there are clues all throughout the New Testament that show us that Paul had bad eyes. We do not know if that is of his thorn in the flesh. Could be, could be something else. The Lord did not tell us, or Paul didn't tell us, what the thorn in the flesh is because probably he wanted all of us to empathize with him. If it was just somebody with bad eyes, only a person with bad eyes could empathize with him. But if all of us have a thorn in the flesh, and we all do, then we can say, I know what Paul was going through. Yeah. You know, mine is lacking a brain. Some of you have, you know, right. whatever. Anyway, um, here we go. Um, so it is believed, yeah, um, large letters. The epistle delivered to Rome would be many pages long if he had to write like that, right? And rather unwieldy. Further, it wasn't uncommon for people to use a scribe to pen their letters as they let their thoughts come out. Some people think, who did this in the Old Testament? Uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. He had the scribe named... Baruch. Baruch, blessing. That's right. So there you go. They actually found one of his uh, bulas, a, a, a bula of Baruch the scribe, and they actually have one. So uh, anyway, um, let's go on here. Um, some people think more clearly as they speak, and this may be the case with Paul. Rush Limbaugh never types. He speaks off the top of his head, and he is one of the most eloquent speakers probably on the planet as far as getting thoughts out correctly. His brother David, who writes book after book after book, cannot do that. He's like me. He thinks with his fingers. He thinks at the speed that he types. And so everything I do, I type. I, I am not good at speaking off the top of my head. That's just Rush Limbaugh is. He's exactly the opposite as, as his brother. So um, it is certainly not the case that Paul, uh, uh, it is certainly not the case that Paul first spoke in Hebrew Aramaic or some other language, and then Tertius translated it into Greek. That is not the case. Paul was fluent in Greek, as is seen in Acts 21, 37. He would have been fluent in his native dialect up in Cilicia. Is that Cilicia? Tarsus of Cilicia. And then he would have known Aramaic. He would have known Hebrew. He would have known Latin. And when he said, I speak in more tongues than all of you, he wasn't speaking of gobbledygook. He was speaking of known languages. He was proficient in many languages. Okay? So there you go with that. Um... Let's see here. Further, it was his custom to sign each epistle that was sent in his name, even if he used a scribe. He notes this in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, where he said, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The unusually large letters and the style of penmanship ensured that an epistle from him was easily recognized. Anyway, if you want to know where Paul spoke in Greek in Acts, it was Acts 21.37, just so you know. Okay, so uh, the words which state who wrote this epistle, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, are graphas ten epstolen. It means wrote, not translated or interpreted. I wrote the substance of the letters, Paul's entirely. Tertius simply put words down as he received them. His name, Tertius, is a Latin name, and some have tried to connect it with Silas, who is noted in... Uh, Acts 13 times, from Acts 15 to Acts 18. This does not seem likely because Silas is named so prominently in Acts by that name. For him to change to the Latin name when Jews were also being addressed in Romans seems a real stretch, but it's not impossible. This Tertius, then, has been given the liberty by Paul to make his own greeting to the Romans. When he does, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Two possibilities for the word in the Lord arise. 
One is that he wrote the epistle in the Lord, meaning under divine inspiration. The second is that greet is being tied to in the Lord. This would mean that he is greeting, his greeting is as a Christian with brotherly love because of it. The second is certainly more likely. It has already been indicated, as noted above, that Paul is the author and he is the scribe. So that is being tied together, greet within the Lord, okay? However, in this sentence, he becomes the author and therefore under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has the high honor of being one of the authors of the Bible, even if it is just for a short thought or two. It is an amazing thing to contemplate. This honor is not unlike that of Jeremiah's scribe Baruch in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 45, after so many trials and with the future very uncertain, the Lord took time to address Baruch personally. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. It's about this long. The entire chapter is devoted to this exchange. Oh, here it is. I, I copied it. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah. When he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up. That is this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places, wherever you go. Marvelous words. Marvelous words. Tertius and Baruch were both given high honor, regardless of how they may have felt about what they were doing. They are noted in God's word and are no less important than those they served. Life application. Tertius is known for doing only one thing for the Lord, being a scribe for someone else who is writing a letter. It seems menial, but the Lord honored Tertius with the signing of his name and giving a greeting. Thus he became a partial author of God's eternal word. Like Baruch and Tertius, if you are in Christ, you too are a valued member of God's community. And what you do will never go unnoticed by him. He will reward you for your acts of faithfulness and your name will be eternally inscribed on heaven's rolls. Great stuff. Go ahead. 23. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends his greeting. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother, Cordus, sends you their greetings. Good job. Anybody know what Cordus means? One quarter. Quarter. Fourth. <laughs> This verse is most probably a continuation of Tertius's greeting, which began in the previous verse. But it could be a return to Paul's thoughts. Can't be dogmatic. Under the assumption that it is Tertius, in addition to his own greeting, he includes greetings from, one, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. The word host carries the thought of a person who accommodates another in his house at his own expense, without charge or expected return. He simply opened his house and welcomed others in. This sounds much like Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul noted earlier in this chapter. The whole church met in their house. The name Gaius, although not necessarily the same person, is first seen in Acts 19 during a time of trouble in Ephesus. A Gaius of Derby is seen in Acts 20. 
Paul notes him in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14 as someone he personally baptized. And Gaius, if the same individual has the high honor of a letter being written to him, which is included as a book of the Bible, John 3 John 1 verse 1 says to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, to be so prominently displayed in the pages of the Bible and to be so faithfully noted as both rare and honoring of his Christian service. Two, Erastus, the treasurer of the city, is noted in Acts 19.22. He was sent by Paul along with Timothy to minister in Macedonia. The treasurer of the city would be a high distinction within the Roman Empire, and he would be considered a noble. This shows that Paul was probably speaking of him when he wrote this to the Corinthians. Let's go real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, whoops, I don't have to go very far. It's right next to it, isn't it? Um, 26, 1 Corinthians uh, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. All right? So, saying not many implies that there were some. Paul may have had him in his thoughts as he wrote about varying types God has chosen. He's also mentioned one more time in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, where it says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus 6. So much for the false gospel of healing. All right, we pray for healing. I believe that God heals. I do not believe in faith healers. There's a big difference between the two. I believe in faith healing, but not faith healers. That's why we pray for this lady today. It's because we believe that God can do it if he determines to do it. If he chooses not to, that's his sovereign right. He may have a purpose that we don't know about, okay? But Paul did not heal, what's his name, um, uh, Trophimus. He left him sick in Miletus. He did not heal Timothy. He was with Timothy for years, and he always had stomach problems. He said, drink a little wine for your constant stomach problems, right? He said, Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel, right? He didn't heal him. They were praying for him. They were worried about him, but he didn't heal him. Paul healed when the Lord inspired him to heal and not at any other time. Faith healers, turn off that stuff on your TV. All right, um, let's hear. Other than these things, nothing is more said about this guy in Scripture. Three, Cordus, a brother. There's something rather unusual here. The name Tertius means three, and the number Cordus means four. At some times, slaves were given no real names, but were simply numbered. Hey, six, go get me some coffee. Right? Hey, Seven, I need you to bring uh, dinner over to me. That's what they, they just named people by the number that they were bought. Because of this, it is possible that Tertius and Cordus were from the same household and either real brothers born as slaves in the flesh or brothers in Christ, reborn as slaves to him. If this is so, then Paul's words above, which were, I read you, 1 Corinthians 26 and 27, of low people and high people, not everybody was, right? have all the more ring of truth about them. Think of these people, they're actually slaves. One of them knows Greek well enough to be a scribe, and he's number three. He didn't even get a real name. We don't know that, but it's speculation. Anyway, life application. Oh, we're gonna make it. We've got 40 minutes and we've got, or actually 35 minutes and we've got only a couple pages. And I know I'm going quick, but I don't wanna have like to stop after 10 minutes next week. Yeah, I mean, we get here and we got two verses left, which, is more than possible. I don't want to do that. So, life application. Status, amount of wealth, 
type of employment, and other social identifiers don't mean deadly in regards to our relationship with the Lord. The only thing that matters is whether we have Jesus and what we are doing for him. Don't ever feel that you are somehow unworthy of his favor. He has accepted you and he is pleased with you. You know, when I think of that, I think of the people over in Africa that are faithful servants of the Lord. They don't have anything. They have to rely on us to send them something, right? Missionaries, they're serving the Lord with all of their life, their heart and their soul, hopefully, if they're good missionaries, and yet they're dependent on us. And if we cut that funding, their funding is cut. They're stuck, right? So these ideas that we have in the American Prosperity Church do not pan out when you think of the reality of people found in Christ, the faithful people that are out there that are doing their job and paying attention, and they might not have anything, right? Okay, verse 16, 24. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden of the long ages past. Okay, wonderful. And it's very close to what I have. We'll just leave it there. This verse is another you int. One. What? You one. Oh, 24. Yeah, go, yeah, 24. You read 25. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably because there's an A there. Always read your footnotes. Oh. M, text, puts Romans 16, 25 through 27 okay, after Romans 14, 23. There you go. Always read the footnotes. There you go. That's that's why. Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with, with, be with all of you. Amen. All of you. Amen. That's right. Okay. I'm glad you picked that up because I'm looking at my notes and not at the uh, the verse on that. There are differences between the Alexandrian text and the Byzantine text. Okay. Some of them are rather significant, like this one is missing an entire verse. Okay. Not one of these differences is doctrinal in nature. Not one. People say that this takes out the blood. Well, guess what? It adds in the blood where it's missing in the Byzantine. Okay. This is standard. Okay. I'm not going to argue with this with people, but I prefer to use the Byzantine text. That's why I use the New King James Version is because it has these in the clear text, not in the footnotes. If you have a Bible that doesn't have footnotes and it's missing that verse, you ought to not be using that Bible because you don't know. But if you, as I say, always forget commentaries. Commentaries are 99% useless in Bibles because you get one little paragraph on a page that may have 400 pages worth of theology on it. Okay, but the footnotes are invaluable. They will tell you what the Samaritan Pentateuch says, what the Dead Sea Scrolls says. It's a, it will tell you what the difference in the um, Septuagint is. Those are where you need to know the differences because I don't care what version of the Bible you use, there will be differences which are, we are men. We are men. And we take God's word and all we can do is our best with it. Okay? So, uh, if you have a Bible that does not contain footnotes, I wouldn't use it at all. I would make sure you have one. And I'm talking about footnotes which speak of the textual differences between the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, and possibly other lesser texts, okay? The same is true with the Hebrew. You've got the Masoretic text, which is what I use when we preach. When I preach to you in the Hebrew, I always refer to the Masoretic text, okay? If I don't, you will know it because I'll say the Greek Septuagint says, or, you know, the Samaritan Pentateuch says this, but Okay, I will let you know those differences. And sometimes there are differences. But the main thing that we want to understand is that in 1947, God gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. He has confirmed his word. The differences are minimal at best. 
none of them are doctrinal that I would say that changes the intent of scripture. There are a couple things that I would prefer you would use the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Greek translation which supports the Dead Sea Scrolls, such as uh, his soul shall see the light of life in Isaiah 53, which is not contained in the Masoretic text. Why? Because the Jews knew that that pointed to a resurrection. There are about five or six points. One of them, I bring it up from time to time, is Psalm 22. Guess what? The King James Version, the uh, New King James Version, they divert from the Masoretic text, which they say they use because Psalm 22 is hidden by the Jews a particular point. It says, like a lion, my hands and my feet in the Hebrew. It doesn't make any sense. Well, that's because they emended the text and it actually says they pierced my hands and my feet. And if you know the Hebrew and you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find out, in fact, it is in there and it is, they pierced my hands and my feet. So I don't care what version of the Bible you use. I don't care what text you use. You need to check with all of them. You need to have the footnotes to refer to because if you don't, you are missing out on the high theology, the things that actually are very, very important because man has gotten his hands on these words. Man is fallible. Man has presuppositions. Man makes mistakes. But God has preserved his words by having a wide base of textual evidence to support the veracity of his word. And you have to be studious to know that. This is one of them. Okay. Anyway, here we go. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This verse is another internal clue that all of the Verses 22 through 24 were penned by Tertius, the scribe, and not by Paul. In verse 20, Paul wrote, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. It seems unlikely that he would repeat himself so closely in wording at such a close interval. But for Tertius to make the same comment would be natural and even expected. This salutation was probably a common one, one among the saints from the earliest days of the church and would have been repeated often. In fact, these words of Tertius are a mirror of John's final words in the book of Revelation. Absolute mirror. They also say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Tertius, though a mere scribe, was granted the high honor of being a part author in the eternal word of God. As his greeting to the Romans has become a part of this word, he is reaching across space and through time to greet you personally. Think of it. Think of that as you read his words again and on the wonder of the Bible because he's greeting you all and it's a part of the book of Romans which is written to you all Tertius is greeting you okay life application what things do you think will survive your evaluation by Christ as believers we will all stand before him and receive from him our rewards some things will be burned away some will survive that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 let's go there we're gonna have time so I'm gonna do it 1 Corinthians 3 Oh, I don't have to go through. I have to keep reminding myself that we're right at 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, and then I want to read you verses 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Guess what happens when you put gold and silver in the fire? It refines it. That's right. If anyone's work... Um, yes, if anyone's work which he is built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through 
fire. That sounds like you can lose your salvation. Well, it sounds like you can if you ask me. Absolutely. Just, I know you are. I know sarcasm. it. I know it was. And I, and I love it. Okay, the process will be perfectly fair and we will be thoroughly satisfied with what he decides. But we may not be happy with our reflections on the life we lived, right? Endeavor now to do those things which will be pleasing to the Lord so that your rewards will be many and your cup will be large and eternally blessed with overflow. Good stuff. Okay, 25, read it again. You got practice a minute ago. Now you get the warm-up first. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. Okay, this one says, since the world began. Verse 16, 25, Paul now begins his closing verses of the epistle with a doxology. This is actually the only epistle that he ends with one. Others contain one or more doxologies, but this one is unique in this way. And so he begins with, now to him. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, as is noted in verse 20. Just before Tertius's insert greetings, it is he, as Paul says, who is able to establish you. This sentiment is found again in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, which say, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. All right, the process, uh, oh, wait a minute. Um, the work that Christ has begun in us as recipients of his offering of grace, he is fully capable of establishing and continuing in us. All right, back in Romans chapter one, Paul wrote these words concerning this very precept. Romans one, verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may encourage together with you, be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both of you and me. All right. So uh, his hope was to impart some spiritual gift that you may be established. Now he notes that it is the Lord who, in fact, is able to so establish them. And this, as he says, according to my gospel. In other words, the doctrines which were set forth in this epistle written by him. This gospel is entirely Christ-centered. We were predestined for salvation because God foreknew us, Romans 8, 29. Our calling is of the Lord, Romans 8, 30. Salvation is of the Lord, Romans 10, 9, and right out of the mouth of Jonah. Remember the last thing he said when he was, salvation is of the Lord, okay? This came through the work of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the work of Christ. That's Romans 15, verse 16. And glorification is of the Lord as well, Romans 8.30. Everything that Paul wrote about was of Christ. After noting that the Romans can be established through the words of his epistle, he adds, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Paul was personally instructed by the Lord. He has also had the testimony of other apostles concerning the words of the Lord. But care must be taken here to understand what Paul is speaking of. The majority of Jesus' recorded words in the Gospels were spoken to the Jews. To the Jews. Israel, under what dispensation? The the, that's right. The, the, under the law, looking forward in anticipation of the kingdom gospel. That is exactly right. There is a separation between these words and the words which speak of the church age. The two are not to be mixed. If what Jesus said under the law was enough to establish us, 
there would be no need for New Testament epistles. Everybody got that? People fall back on Jesus' words continuously. You see it all the time. Even dispensationalists will go and they'll refer to Jesus' words in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they'll say, see, this is what, I read a commentary today in the table talk. It's an older one because I don't get it anymore. But uh, I was reading a, a commentary and the guy was speaking of being a light of a city on a hill. He wasn't speaking to us. All right. It's true. We can be a light. We can, you can use that metaphorically. I have no problem with that. But that is not what Jesus was saying to us, he was saying it to the Jews in Israel about a particular issue there. If you want to say this is metaphorically speaking, that's fine. If you take that verse and you quote it, that he's speaking to us and that we're supposed to do that, that's mishandling that. Anyway, um, and people do it all the time. Make sure that you understand that this the difference between Paul's letters, which explain Christ's work in its completion, and what Jesus said, which was looking forward to something completely different and under the law which he was getting ready to fulfill on our behalf, okay? So, um, uh, and like I said, there's a separation. The two are not to be mixed because if they are, we wouldn't need the New Testament epistles. Anyway, but there is, uh, there is a need because the church age and the kingdom age are spoken to Israel are in fact separate dispensations. Mixing these two then often leads to erroneous doctrine. And this is absolutely certain because Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ mentioned here are according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. That's his words. Read it again. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. This is how God does things in redemptive history. He progressively reveals his intentions for us. That's why I do not believe that Genesis 6, speaking of the Nephilim, is speaking of the angels, the fallen angels in the book of Job. God progressively reveals he is speaking about the two lines of people, the sons of God and the sons of men. The sons of God are the chosen line. The sons of men are the fallen people, the Nephilim, the fallen ones. And the fall is the, the Hebrew word from which that is derived. And guess what? We have Nephilim coming up in the book of Numbers. Doesn't make much sense to have the whole world wiped out and have the fallen ones wiped out with them just to find out that there's more fallen ones all of a sudden in the book of Numbers long after the flood. It's speaking of the two lines of people. You have the those that are fallen and those that are not. We were all Nephilim, believe it or not, at one point or another because we were fallen. We were in Adam. We were not regenerated until we came to Christ. But God has set apart a line of people. If you disagree, that's fine. I, I don't argue with people over that particular issue, but it is not speaking. You're never going to change my mind on that. It is not something that I am. I've already preached that passage. My mind is made up. Before I go to a passage, I always say, am I wrong in what I believe in this? But once it's done, the doctrine is said. I know that it's correct. Anyway, go watch that sermon. You'll agree with me too. Okay. Um, probably not. If you If you don't agree now, you're probably not going to agree, but let it go. Um, okay, so let's see here. Um, um, oh yeah, God does things progressively in redemptive history until Paul revealed these mysteries and those in his other epistles. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. mystery. Therefore, Jesus could not have been speaking about the rapture in Matthew 24. No man knows the day and the hour because Paul, 30 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, said, behold, I show you a mystery. He's speaking of the rapture for the first time, unveiling it for human understanding. Something is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. It is not speaking of the rapture in Matthew 24 in any way, shape, 
or form. Okay, so having said that, um, he's, uh, Paul is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote back and forth in this letter to Jew and the, to Gentiles, showing that both are acceptable in Christ and both are in need of Christ. The mystery here, this mystery that he's writing about, or hidden truth, is revealed through Paul. Before that, it was unknown since the world began. The word used here literally means in times eternal. All right, and that's another reason right here why I believe in the fallen ones, the Nephilim being the sons of men, being the line of Adam that is not regenerated, because this is what they believed since the world began. And now he's saying the Jew and Gentile are both grafted into this. There is no longer one line. There are people that can be accepted from all over the place, okay? Uh, there were, in fact, hints of the dispensational model given all the way back in Genesis, such as clues that Gentiles would for a certain time, assume the banner of redemption, the church age. Does anybody remember where that is? It's right in the prophecy of Noah over his sons, and it is what establishes the entire structure of the Bible after that. The entire structure. Do I have time? We better not. Uh, real quickly, Noah blessed his sons. He said that uh, Shem gets the, the spiritual blessing. I will do it. If we don't finish, we don't finish. Um, uh, here we go. I'm going to take you there very quickly. It's going to be Genesis chapter 9. The entire structure of the Bible is based on what he says to his sons right here. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. I did this in a previous Romans update. You can go back and watch that. May God enlarge Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. The tents of Shem. You've got the law. You've got the Jewish Shem. And then all of a sudden, you've got the ending of that. Everything up until the point of John is all Shem. And then John mixes. All of a sudden, something is happening. There's a mixture. You get to the book of Acts. You start with Shem. You end up with Japheth. Japheth continues on to Philemon. And all of a sudden, it gets back to Hebrews. Shem. He is dwelling in the tents of Shem. And from there, the structure of the entire Bible comes clear based on Genesis chapter 9. We won't go into any more than that. Go back and watch that that uh, particular one. You will understand what God is doing in the pages of Scripture with that. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, hidden truth, Paul revealed it. Where was I? Yeah, the church age. These hints were concealed until the events came about. Only in hindsight can we fully grasp what the illusions we were given back there actually meant. The mystery was secure until it was fully revealed after the coming of Christ. This concept of hiding and revealing things is actually noted right in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That's right. That was eight ever. Miss forever. There we go. Okay. God in his infinite wisdom has taken man through various dispensations in order to show us that in any situation, we are utterly dependent on him and his open hand of grace and mercy. Life application, all hail the work of Jesus Christ, which reconciles us to God. 1626. But now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings of the command of the, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. Okay, little different structure, but same words. We're going to go with it because we've just got a couple more minutes. This thought continues from the previous verse, which spoke of the revelation of the mystery kept since the world began. It is the mystery which is now made manifest, according to Paul. What was concealed is now revealed. What was hidden is now openly seen. What was secret is now made 
evident. This begs us to ask, how is this accomplished? And the answer is found in the Bible itself. Paul says it is by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. The Hebrew scriptures were eventually translated into Greek, the main language of the empire at that time. Thus, they were accessible to all nations at that time. The Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, the writing of the 70, was known throughout the world, and it's still known today. It predates Christ's coming by about 200 plus or minus years, all right? Because they could be retranslated into regional dialects from the Greek or surrounding languages very easily. What God had kept for so long among a small and almost isolated group of people in an obscure tongue, meaning Hebrew, was now ready to be made known to all nations. This Greek translation known as, here it is, the Septuagint or the LXX. That's because L is 50, X is 10, X is 10, the 70, okay? And is the most quoted text of Jesus and the apostles. When you read anything that they say it is written, Paul writes it is, is almost always the Septuagint. Jesus' words in scripture are almost always from the Greek text, not the Hebrew, okay? However, uh, the book of Hebrews is, I think, exclusively from the Septuagint. I don't think he quotes the Hebrew at all. Anyway, here we go. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, oh, yes. Um, but just as important as it was to have the scriptures, which testified to the coming Messiah and the work of God in Christ, it was just as important that he actually came in fulfillment of the prophetic word. Through his coming, those hidden mysteries, which told of him, could clearly be understood. As Jesus said to the Jews of his day when speaking of their scriptures, the body which comprises the Old Testament, you search the scriptures. It could be an imperative or it could be he's saying, well, this is what you do. Either way, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are what testify of me. He's saying everything in the Old Testament. And you go through these sermons with us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You can watch them at home. They're all recorded. Ruth. Um, uh, Jonah and um, Esther. We've done all of those and we're in numbers right now. Every word of it keeps pointing to Jesus. Every word of it. Everything within the Old Testament scriptures testifies to the coming Christ and God's plan of redemption in history. Everything now found in the New Testament scriptures testifies to the accomplished work of Christ and God's continued plan of redempt redemption in history. It is all about Jesus. The mysteries have been made known, and even those mysteries which are still future are explained in some part, such as the rapture of the church. Okay, we don't know fully. We know it's going to happen. It's a guarantee. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation 4 verse 1, they all tell us the rapture is going to happen, but we don't have all of the details. Okay, and all of this is, as Paul says, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, El Olam. It is God, timeless and eternal, who issued the decree that these things should be. In the old, here it is, in the Old Testament, he is called El Olam. El is God, Olam means to eternity. He is eternal and unchanging, and thus his commandments, when issued from eternity past, are eternally relevant. Nothing he has decreed can fail to transpire. The word he has breathed out within the framework of time, and thus all things that occur in time happen in accord with the accomplishment of his spoken word. Nothing is outside of his knowledge or control. And the reason for the issuance of his word, which is in accordance with his will, is that it is for obedience to the faith. This thought ties us directly back to Romans 1, verse 5, which said, Through him... 
We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. This is the third or fourth time he's used chapter 16 to tie right back to chapter 1. He keeps doing it. He's summing up what he introduced way back there. The scriptures are what testify to Christ and bring about obedience to the faith. Before Christ came, there were five distinct dispensations. Innocence, conscience, government, promise, and law. The Old Testament scriptures came about under the dispensation of... The writing of the Old Testament scriptures came about under the dispensation of law. Right, law. Moses was writing the history of Genesis during the time of the law. Okay, got that? There you go. Written under the time of law. And uh, let's see here. Um, uh, dispensation of law. And they set up a temporary system of government until faith was revealed. When Christ came and fulfilled the law, the plan of redemption moved from obedience to the law to obedience to the faith everybody got that as paul says in romans 6 verse 14 for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace, grace. thank you this is where we stand and in our faith we are to be obedient not to law we are not to introduce or reintroduce the law into our life it is a self-condemning act according to paul you are obligated to the entire law you have fallen from grace christ means nothing to you and jesus is the object of that faith it is the greatest act of grace that we could imagine and yet far too often we trade the grace of jesus christ for a return to the law we do it with tithing we do it with you know um, uh, the feasts of the lord i've got to do the sabbath day i've got to do this i got to do that one thing and another it is all law Paul says we went very clearly through Romans chapter 14. I don't care what day you worship on. One day, one person esteems one day above another. One day, person esteems all the same. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind because it must be of faith. Right. Okay. This is where we stand. You want to observe a Sabbath, do it. But if you're doing it to merit God's favor, you've fallen from grace. Okay. This is where we stand in and in our faith, we are to be obedient. In our faith, we are to be obedient. And Jesus is the object of that faith. All right? Let us not make such an error of falling from the grace of Jesus Christ, but re let us rest wholly in his finished work. Oh, we're going to make it. Life application. The commandment of the everlasting God is summed up in believing in the one whom he has sent. John 6, 29. If we have this sure faith, then we are truly saved. It is a gift, and it cannot be earned. Let us thank God for his wonderful beautiful grace 1627 to the only wise god be glory forever through christ jesus christ amen amen i'm going to read this one to god alone be wise be glory through jesus christ forever amen okay the reason why we have to finish on time is because the thing goes onto a podcast some of you may not know it and that's why i have to rush through this i'm sorry we didn't have a lot of discourse today you got to have the podcast because if not, I cause the guy that does the podcast a lot of grief. He's got to do all this extra stuff. And so I don't want to do that. We've got a couple more minutes. Verse 16, 27. This is, I can't believe it. It's been uh, two years, five months, two years and five months. This is, that means uh, five fifty-two times two is a hundred and uh, four. And then you add in five months, five times uh, four is 20. So about 124 uh, Bible studies to get through it. Praise the Lord. 
This is the final verse of the book of Romans. It has taken 433 days in my writing, in my writing, because it's one verse at a time. It took 433 days to get here, and it has been a wonderful journey of discovery and edification. Hey, um, Hebrews is 303 long. I mean, the people that are reading that have been there a long time, and they've got a long way to go. I mean, it's a, it's a long book, but I got to tell you. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, from the hand of Paul in this verse, he finishes his doxology with the reverent and exalting words to God alone wise through his wisdom he fashioned the heavens and the earth through his wisdom he created man and through his wisdom he gave man free will knowing that this was needed for a true heartfelt relationship without free will you can't have it sorry about people that don't believe in free will but I, I just I am absolutely adamant that free will is a tenet that is taught in the Bible just like the Trinity, it never says the word Trinity, but guess what? It is stated there. And the doctrine of uh, original sin, it never uses that term in the Bible, but it is taught. All right, so um, he gave us free will, knowing that this was needed for a true heartfelt relationship. Man fell, but God initiated the plan that was in his mind before creation. Jesus Christ would come to reveal his very heart and to be the one to restore us to him and so it is to this wondrous creator who alone is wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. According to Paul, Jesus is, as Colossians 1 tells us, the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. When we look out into the stars and even to the furthest galaxies, or when we look into the smallest subatomic particles, we see the wisdom of God displayed in the work of Jesus Christ. And further, he is the mediator between God and man. Thus, we offer our glory through him. The word is dia in Hebrew, I believe. I'll have to check it, but it probably is dia, which means diameter, dia through, okay? Through him. And we behold the glory of God through him as well. Paul has shown us time and again in this epistle that Jesus is our meeting point with God. Thus, in order to be reconciled to him, whether Jew or Gentile, it must occur through the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, from this epistle, we discern the heart of the gospel and the way to be reconciled once again to God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. I added the second all in there. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, but the gift of God. You've got the wages, you've got the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you might be saved. No, it doesn't say that. It says you will be saved. You ask, you believe in faith, and it will be granted. God sent Jesus to live the life we cannot live. He lived the perfect life, never sinning. He gave his life in exchange for our sins, and God raised him from the dead as evidence of his sinless perfection. The offer is made Receive Jesus and receive his righteousness. Choose wisely. Choose Jesus. Life application. Romans shows us the love of God in Jesus Christ. His work is fully capable to save us and to reconcile us to God. Now because of him, we stand justified before God apart from deeds of the law. 
Let us never forget that we are saved by grace through faith and let us never attempt to set aside that grace by attempting to be justified by our deeds. Let us rest wholly upon the work of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Quoted uh, Colossians, it probably should have been Hebrews. Hebrews. He's the image of the invisible. No, that's Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God. You're thinking of sustaining all things by his word, which is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. But it says the same thing in Colossians too. So you, okay. yeah, that's okay. This is the book of Hebrew, uh, book of Romans done. Oh About 500 pages wow. of delight. There you go. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we made it. We're done. We're, we thank you that we were able to finish in this class. I pray that I didn't go too quick and that if people have questions about some of the things we reviewed, they have YouTube. They can go back and watch again. Thank you for that. We also have this online. Lord, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for... Paul's hand in it. Thank you for our hearts that are geared towards it. Thank you for everybody that has been a part of this study, and I pray that they have been blessed by it. I pray that you will continue to bless them with it, and that their walk in you will be one of soundness, steadfast faith, and perseverance in Christ, and not in deeds of our own. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. All hail Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his beautiful and exalted name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, we made it in time. All right, next week we'll get into something else. And um, I, I don't know yet. I've been asked several different books. I think I know what I'm going to do. I've been asked that. I know that several times. I don't think I'm going to do that, and there's a reason why. But um, uh, I, I, I think I know what I'm going to do, but we'll find out next week. And let me put the camera back for you. And we'll say goodbye to everybody out there. Great. Well, I got one.